I'm Teresa Broderick with Ernst & Young's Corporate Real Estate Consulting Group, and I'm also the Chicago Chapter Program Chair. So we are super excited to have you here at um, this new venue and with some great speakers. So as most of you probably know, in the U.S. we celebrate Earth Day in April, and sustainability and environmental consciousness have been a big part of the real estate, construction, and design industries for the last couple decades. And we know that concerns around um, the environment are only increasing, but also the context that we're talking about it have been changing, right? So that kind of spurred our, our conversation here today, right? To kind of take a step back, zoom out, and look at ESG um, as that broader picture, right? So ESG, environmental, social, and governance. So we have three amazing speakers here today who will help define those three terms further um, and also discuss how their organizations are tackling this. Um, we know there's different stakeholders, different perspectives, and different considerations um, shifting from a look at sustainability to a broader kind of ESG lens. So I'm going to invite our speakers up here. Um, first, we have Aditi Sant. She's the executive director, um, corporate real estate with Otis. We have Charles Hardy, the chief architect at the GSA. And Emily Mulcahy, head of real estate for EMEA and Americas with Dyson. Well, welcome to today's session. Uh, we're going to try and talk about ESG. I'll just go over the framework a little bit. We're going to do some brief intros um, about ourselves. We have a preamble. We throw around a lot of acronyms, GRI, SASB, Scope 1, Scope 3, Scope 2, the Paris Accord. So Chuck and Emily will talk about those before we jump in. <clears throat> then we have uh, three sections that we're going to go through. The first section, we're going to talk about what our companies are doing in terms of goals and how that translates to what we do as corporate real estate executives. Um, the second section, we're going to talk about some examples of projects um, in, in the three categories, if you will. And then the third section, we're going to talk about the fun topic of metrics, reporting, and accounting. So um, <clears throat> we'll get started. I'll first introduce myself. There are going to be some mentee polls. Um, as we go through. We cannot see the screen here, so Teresa is going to try and moderate um, and, and give us some of the results. So please participate. If you have your phones, you might want to get them out um, because you'll need to log in uh, for the Minty polls. So let's start with me. I'm Adiri Sam. I'm the executive director for Otis Worldwide. Um, we make an elevators and escalators. We're the largest manufacturer and servicer. Um, of elevators and escalators. I've been with the company about two years. Prior to that, I had um, a similar and a global role with Kraft Heinz Foods Company. Uh, and before that, I was with Citadel and Bank of America. Uh, so I've, I've spent most of my time um, on the end user side. Um, I live in Elmhurst. I have two kids. And um, I'm an architect by training. I was born and raised in India. I became a citizen yesterday after 20 plus years in the country. Um, and um, I, got, I came here for my master's. I have a master's from Cornell uh, in human-centered design. So Chuck, I'll let you introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Chuck Hardy. I'm the chief architect for the General Services Administration uh, with, the, with the federal government. 
uh, own about 360 million, I think, at last count square feet across the country, half owned, half leased. So a pretty broad portfolio. I oversee all the design and construction that's going on in, in that area across the country. Uh, all <clears throat> stateside operations. We don't we, we don't do any overseas uh, with State Department, anything like that. Um, architect by license and training, uh, environmental design degree as well. Uh, been with the government seems like forever. Um, live in Elmhurst as well uh, with three kids and uh, having fun. I'm Emily Mulcahy. I'm the head of corporate real estate for Dyson for both EMEA and the Americas. This is my seventh year at Dyson, managing end to end all things real estate. Prior to that, I was in residential real estate construction. And no kids, city living, uh, two cats, avid bird washer. All right, so we're going to jump in with the preamble. Um, before we do that, we have a mentee poll. So, Teresa, where are you? You guys can see this? Okay. Yeah, so if you can catch the QR code, go ahead and do that. Um, if that's not working for you, just go to menti.com, M-E-N-T-I.com, and put in that code. So 1306474. Just give everyone a moment to log in there. So the first question is just about your role in the company. Um, if you're an end user, executive, someone who's actually from the ESG world and does sustainability or DEI, uh, B work, IT ops, um, HR marketing, or a vendor consultant, other. All right. 55% are in the last category. Yep. Vendor and consultant or other. <laughs> but I think the key takeaway here is that only 6% are in a role where you focus on ESG or sustainability. So. None of us are ESG experts. We are corporate real estate experts, so we, we don't pretend to be experts, but I'm glad we at least have some representation um, in the group. We have one more poll. What facet from your perspective or your company is, uh, do you consider the most important? And this is a little bit of a force ranking, if you will. The ESG or unsure. One moment. I think we might have to come back to this. Unforeseen technical difficulties. We have one more question, but we can come back to it, okay? So let's go with the preamble. Um, Chuck and Emily, I'm going to turn this to you. We have a lot of global agreements, the Paris you know, Accord, GRI, UN Global Compact. Um, can you just set the stage or the tone for what all of these things mean? Chuck, maybe we start with you. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things interesting about the federal government, and, and, and one is... Uh, we get dr driven by executive orders at times, which is the current administration's direction out to the government uh, on what, what, and where to where to move, kind of thing. And so, there has been a strong focus, as you've seen, uh, around climate sustainability, uh, and and so a lot of policy comes out on that, and we start to align with policy. The other thing that's unique about the government is we're our own building code officials, so we start to incorporate those things into our. Uh, standards and our specifications, so it starts to flow flow into it. So what you're saying here is the Executive Order 15057. Uh, it talks about reducing scope one and two greenhouse gases, uh, gas emissions uh, by 65% by 2030 compared to a 2008 baseline. I'll go into a little later on, since we aren't all ESG folks, and I'll explain a little bit later on the scopes and then so give some clarity around that. 
100% carbon-free, uh, carbon pollution-free electricity, uh, net annual basis by 2030, uh, pursue building electrification strategy. So this isn't necessarily a directive as far as a, specific, a specificity around it, but move toward it. Uh, and then design all new construction greater than 25,000 square feet to be net zero ready. I'll, again, I'll explain that term a little bit later. And then uh, move toward net zero emissions from federal procurement. And this is developing policy and things that are going to come out around buy clean. And so we'll start seeing more about that. So we take that executive order. That flows into what is our facility standards. And this is the standards that any federal building is built to. Uh, we've set our standards to be 30% greater than ASHRAE uh, 90.1, which is kind of the baseline for everybody. Uh, all electric space and water heating operations is in there as a mandate. These are all buildings that are starting post uh, October of 22. So any any new building, any, anyone that's good funded follows these rules now. Uh, new material sustainability provisions. We have concrete and asphalt standards. For that, we actually went out to the industry because everybody was saying, oh, it's going to cost us an arm and a leg to buy carbon-free uh, concrete, less, less carbon uh, asphalt. And what we heard from the industry was, no, it's not going to cost you anymore. It, it, sometimes it actually may cost you less. And so by listening to the industry, working with our industry partners, We've incorporated some smart specifications into that, which is we don't buy a lot of concrete compared to, like, Department of Transportation and others, but they're actually looking to us to as, as leaders in those kind of specifications that they're going to start applying to. Um, whole building life, life cycle cost assessment is pushing, pushing that forward. EPA SNAP, which is significant new alternative policy uh, on refrigerants. So, again, we, we're trying to nudge industry, create demand, that then the private sector companies pick up on two and do forward because the manufacturing starts to flow around it. And then electric vehicle chargers. Uh, it's mandated that we're putting at least one in every facility we're building, but we're putting the infrastructure to add uh, a bunch more as a technical term. Um, next slide. So there's a lot of terms out there, and, and net zero ready is one of those. And everybody's like, what does that even mean? And, and it really, what it really means is uh, new and major constructions we're designing it to the maximum extent possible to be net zero, but when you start talking about wind and battery and PV, uh, it's not installing that day one, but as this slide shows, it's showing you have the space where it's going to go. It's actually incorporated into the master plan of design. So when the funding becomes available, when the technology around battery and systems catch up, we can jump onto it, and by 2030, and this is a challenge, with all these buildings, 23, actually it's been since 2018, 2018 forward, being net zero ready, the challenge really is going to be that funding element to get from net zero ready to net zero. And that's something we're kind of watching on and tracking. How do you, how do you make that shift? They'll all be positioned for it, but how do we get there? This one is, and, and again, what's nice about it, everybody's learning this language now, which is kind of cool. So net zero operational emissions versus net zero site energy. If you look at the, like the fire, little fossil symbol, fossil fuel symbol level, it kind of shows you when you can use that and when you're not. So when you're talking net zero operational emissions, you're talking a building with no fossil fuels and using carbon pollution-free grid electricity. Right now, as we're tapping into some grids, we're tapping into dirty grids. And so it, while we're not necessarily doing everything we can do, once that grid gets clean, we're positioned to be, to be there. When you look at net zero energy building, uh, it, it becomes, that's energy versus emissions. Then you can start having those mixes that you're talking about. And, and so this is where a lot of this stuff gets really super confusing. 
uh, and it's why I'm looking at cheat sheets, why these tables are developed, why we brief people. All that kind of stuff is because we need to get the people to understand exactly what it is we're talking about. And, and this is one we put together just to get a simple descriptor uh, of what really net zero, the path to net zero means. The dark green below is everything we would do in an opening, opening day of a building that's net zero ready. That top one of renewable and storage puts it over the top to get to net zero. We're trying to make sure that we're controlling, it's like controlling stupid, um, don't just put in PV panels to get a lead credit or, or to do something. Uh, we're doing 26 border stations under the building uh, bilateral infrastructure law. Um, and a lot of them are up in northern, northern parts of the country, and we're doing one up that's getting their power from Niagara Falls. You can get, couldn't get cleaner hydroelectric power, and it costs exponentially to make that a net zero building by putting PVs on site and things like that. So it doesn't make sense because we're already getting clean power. So why would you want to do self-generation in an area where there's nobody to sell the energy back to if you have excess energy? So we're trying to, again, get people to start thinking about, let's look at context and goals and, and meet intent. Scopes. Everybody hears about scopes. Scopes one, two, three kind of thing. Are, are, you, are you meeting those goals? Scope one is, is pretty much the, the understandable one on site. Um, Things like gas-powered vehicles, burning natural gas, space heating, water heating, all that kind of stuff that you're familiar with. Scope two is when we do power purchase agreements. We buy clean power, but it counts for us because we're, again, uh, enabling the industry. And then scope three includes commuting, travel, materials, all that kind of stuff uh, other than, uh, this, than the scope one and two. Most of the focus right now is on scope one and two. Um, and, and companies and GSA as well is starting to stand up pretty robust uh, efforts around the scope three emissions uh, to make sure that we're looking at that and capturing it. And I'm going through this fast, but hopefully uh, people are catching and keeping up with it. Um, embodied carbon. Um, I, got, I was on a call this morning, and I can't remember the country in Europe, but there's a country in Europe that's basically banning any new construction. And, and the reason they're doing it is the inventory is there. The embodied carbon has already been placed in the buildings that exist. Let's renovate the structures we have in ways that can improve where we're going. And so when you talk about embodied carbon, there is a much greater leaning toward looking at something that's already built. So you're not demoing it. You're not carting it away. Greater emissions, all those kind of things. And you're reusing what you've got. So that's that upfront embodied carbon. And then you get to the operational carbon, which is a building consumption. Um, and... For the most part, uh, around emissions, around building consumption, around all this kind of stuff is, it's not all the whiz-bang technology that we're putting onto it. It's just make sure you have a tight envelope. Make sure you're not using the energy first is the easiest way to save energy. Make sure you're not building a new building if an, if an existing one exists. So it's, it's that kind of uh, conversations we're having now in a much more robust way that's helping us get to, to all the goals we need to be at. So I think it's over to you now. Yeah, Emily, anything to add? So I think from a 5,000 point view, right, environmental, social, governance, there's three channels to this that are all unique but interrelated. We don't have to do all of them at once, right? It seems like every couple of years there's a new key phrase. First it was lead and then it was well and now it's ESG. And every time we add on just a little bit more, those of us at CRE are left going, God, I just spent so much money and time trying to get the last one and now we got the next one. And 
I come from a project management background. So anytime I'm looking at something new, I go into change management mode and I think, okay, what do we have resource to actually do today? What can we do tomorrow? And how can we keep it going beyond that? So I would say as we start to go through the rest of the content, just keep thinking what's applicable for you guys right now and tomorrow. A lot of these new pieces of, again, scope one, scope two, scope three, we're all focusing on that big first one right now of just the starting place. And a lot of companies are leaving two and three behind where they actually have more resource and knowledge to date to really make effectual change. So don't forget about all the pieces along the way would be my guidance. Go ahead. All right. So we're going to, I don't know if the polling is working yet. Yep, we can go back and do that second poll. So the question is around what of the E, S, and G from your company perspective? It's a force ranking, and all of them may be important, but we are forcing you to rank. Yeah, so basically, it's, it's going between E, S, and G in that order. I know that the uh, labels are very difficult to read, and then unsure on the far right. Okay. Can we so, go to one more? Because that ties to our next section. One more poll? Yep, there is one more poll. Yeah, so it looks like the E and the S are nearly tied here. Give it one more moment. Got it. Okay. And then, Interesting. I wonder how you guys would have ranked this two, three, four years ago. And it would be interesting to see how this changes. So... Mm -hmm. Chris and Teresa, whoever is going to be the new program director three years from now, we should probably repeat this. <laughs> Good idea. All right, we can go to the next poll. There's one more. Yep. Okay. Already have lots Has of your CRE team established ESG goals aligned with your corporate targets? So, um, from left to right, the left is yes, clearly established, and then to a large extent. Uh, middle, uh, winning at the moment, goals in progress, but no alignment or oversight at this stage. Uh, the 13% is not yet begun, and 18% are unsure. So it looks like lots of goals in place, but um, still maybe working towards uh, really setting a, a plan and, um, and getting alignment around that. Thank you. All right. We're going to move to the next section here, which is tied to, I think, this last question that we had. Um, this is going to talk about what ESG commitments have each of our companies publicly stated. Um, and are these blanket commitments or unique to the markets, business units, and or teams? And which of these commitments have been cascaded to our corporate real estate teams? So I'll start here a little bit uh, with what Otis has been doing, um, if you will. Just a little bit of a background of our company. We have uh, over 1,400 locations in over 80 countries, 69,000 people. Um, half of those, about 41,000 um, of those are field professionals. So they're the folks that come service your elevator um, or they're in the vans um, moving up and down, if you will. We service 2.2 million units worldwide. So that's a pretty big and a significant distributed portfolio. When you think about our business, um, it's primarily service and new construction or modernization. Service is the, our bread and butter. That's our crown jewel. Um, that's where we have uh, most of our profit margin and our revenue that comes in. New construction and mod, that's an interesting topic based on what Chuck was talking about for you know, retrofitting existing buildings. The Willis Tower is one of our projects. We're retrofitting 100 plus elevators um, 
in the Willis Tower, the Eiffel Tower, um, those, those are a smaller portion, and they don't have to all be sexy and fancy, super tall skyscrapers, if you will. So um, for us, ESG has been embedded. We, the company is 170 years old, uh, almost 170 years old. Um, back at the World Columbian Exposition Fair in New York, when uh, Alicia Otis uh, showed the safety break, that's when the tall skyscrapers were born. So safety is kind of important for us. Um, so it's a, it's a complicated business, and safety for us is, is very important because we're in the building construction uh, industry, if you will. Um, and for us, um, ES, we became an independent company from United Technologies back in uh, 2020. Um, so April 2020, we were part of Raytheon, Pratt & Whitney. It was a big conglomerate. So that allowed us, I think, to have an artificial starting point, if you will, and our ESG goals and commitments are part of our strat plan. It's not something that sits and stands separately um, or is an add-on, um, if you will, based on our core strategic priorities, which are li listed on the left-hand side. And then on the right-hand side are our ESG goals. So a little bit about our uh, journey, if you will. In 2020, um, we kicked off our effort when we became independent. We formed a diverse board. Six of our 10 board members um, are diverse. Um, we want to get to a 50-50 at some point um, in terms of both gender and race. Uh, we signed our paradigm for parity. We uh, have a big commitment to change, which uh, we just published our 2022 ESG report last week, exactly a, a week ago. Um, and Made to Move Communities, I'll talk about that a little bit. 2021, the UN Global Compact, for those of you that don't know what, what this is, this is, this is a pretty important piece um, of the ESG framework, if you will. Materiality assessment, I don't know if you, everybody knows what that is, but essentially you take your goals and priorities and you put them on a two-by-two two matrix based on impact and opportunity uh, for your company. And that helps you force rank what things are material um, for your particular uh, company, if you will. So that's a very important initial thing that needs to be done when you, if, you, if and when you decide to embark on the ESG framework. Uh, the CDP for climate change. So we have 13 ESG goals that we track, and they were established. EV pilots were launched um, in 2021. It's an interesting journey and process, and we, we'll talk about that a little bit. I don't believe the infrastructure is there yet, um, if you will. And then 2022 was our inaugural year when we published our 2021 report, our first report uh, for ESG. Our executive compensation was tied to ESG goals. And that has been an enormous um, win, I would say, because a lot of executives didn't know what ESG meant, how they can make a difference. So there are two things that are tracked. One is women in leadership positions and actual carbon emissions. We set annual targets um, that are cascaded to level three, uh, all, all executives three levels down from the CEO. And there could be, there's a multiplier or compensation that's based. Um, it's a pretty significant multiplier for them. So they have skin in the game to start to make a meaningful impact, if you will. Um, EAP, um, we did not have 100% coverage for our employee assistance program. For us, mental health and well-being, but also safety is important. That was an enormous effort because the number of countries, languages, and you know, when someone wants to talk um, to an expert, so that was a significant effort. And then we, um, our volunteer policy um, program was launched uh, last year. Um, what's we, our HR data is tracked in Workday. 
And what we've done is actually put our volunteer hours in tracking because we want to audit them as well into the Workday tool. So that's a very big, and I will talk about that because this is a social um, aspect of you know, making sure that you're make, doing the good stuff uh, or meaningful stuff in your communities is a very big effort. Um, I'll run through these very quickly. Health and safety, I spoke about that. Um, we look at health and safety uh, for the safety metrics. We look at um, fatalities. They're, uh, they're, they happen, um, as well as missed uh, days and absence, absences, if you will. Um, so for that, preventative stuff is very important. Uh, so education um, and, and training for employees is very important. And then physical well-being, I spoke about EAP. The first two and how it relates to uh, my world or our world uh, in real estate, we have now global guidelines. And in each of our branches, uh, even though there's field professionals that may not be coming in, we've actually started to design some of these learning spaces so folks can come in and talk to people about safety training. Um, and we're also doing digital um, rollouts so that folks can talk to each other also, you know, there's a lot of training that's involved. So in both for a digital and a physical space perspective, um, that's a direct impact, if you will. Um, on the environment side, we have scope one and scope two. We, we've uh, declared that we want to reduce by 50% uh, by 2030. Carbon neutrality that Chuck was talking about for uh, factories. We have 17 factories. Uh, we're well on our way. Um, factory eligibility for zero waste to landfill. Um, if we have time, we can talk about what that means. And the ISO 14001 certification, all of our factories um, have already exceeded that goal. And then people and communities, uh, I spoke about gender parity, favorability in the inclusion survey. The, the, three, the two or three things that I will just highlight, this, we, we focus a lot on, on STEM. Our, our CEO is a female engineer. So our efforts and volunteering efforts, 50% of our um, giving and volunteering, the target is to uh, have that focused on STEM education. This has been personally really rewarding for me because you, you know, start to go into some of these communities, whether they're well-served or underserved, and do some of these design competitions um, and start to get engagement at, a high, at, at an early stage. It also helps in increasing our score on the diversity metric for our mechanics. It's very difficult to get females to you know, start to do a, a mechanics job. But once you start to educate people and get people excited about the career path, um, et cetera, so my team gets directly involved in planning these events and also participating in some of these. All right, we're going to jump into project examples, if that's OK. So Chuck, I think you have some good examples to share. I do. <laughs> so this one is a land port of entry or border station down in Columbus, New Mexico. Uh, it was an AIA Coat Top Ten Award winner. Um, it really did, when you, when you talk about ESG, it worked well with the community. I mean, this, this is a, border stations are typically lifebloods of the communities they're in. Uh, we had kids coming over from Mexico, coming to school every day and going back, back to Mexico, passing through this. And so they actually designed this to be much more of a learning process as you go through versus just a processing facility. Um, and then when you start looking at the environment, uh, it was respecting uh, the lands was put on. We're generating 49% of the energy from, uh, from uh, the, the building itself. It's designed to do that. We're lead platinum. 35% um, of the building is coming from renewables that are, that are there. So it's, it's hitting on all cylinders, and it's a nice-looking building. 
And so when you look at that and say, okay, this is what it is. We've got another land port going down in San Luis uh, right now that's under design. These, these also operate 24-7. And industry, uh, energy intensity usage on that building, the existing building, is 147 kBTUs per foot. It's going to be built and constructed at 14. And that's just by paying attention to the pieces and parts that go together to make this thing work while pushing through a lot more flow through those facilities because that's adding into the commerce of the country and everything we're doing. San Luis is surprisingly 90% of our the green vegetables you ate today and the thing come through that port uh, and or grow near that port. So you look, you look at these things, they're not just buildings, um, but if we can make them efficient, if we can make them operational, if we can put in ways that we're actually saving the environment, uh, it helps out. And then the next, next one is We've got 8,600 buildings. We have a huge portfolio of historic structures. And typically the first words out of everybody's mouth, well, this is great, but it doesn't play well on historic buildings kind of thing. This is a building in uh, Colorado. It was net zero until the client put in some extra stuff that became a little bit of energy suck and took, a, took us off the net zero. But nobody thought net zero could be done on a historic building. It's got PVs on the ceiling or on the roof. Uh, and we really worked with, again, the enclosure and how we did it to start to achieve all those challenges. But it took a team, it took a project manager who had kind of that passion and then brought the architect along and brought the contractor along and constantly looking for ways to kind of do this as you go and not just accept, well, this is a historic building. We can't do it. Let's move on. We can do a couple simple things, but we can't make this a net zero building. They did. And, and so they're now doing it on some other buildings out in Utah and Colorado. And, and it's just, it's good stuff. It just catches on. And so what, what, nice about showing examples like this is it shows people kind of the art of the uh, art of the possible this is how it looks when it's done this looks like a historic building it doesn't have like these wings coming off it of pvs and things like that and so that's what you got to get our clients through that we put in these buildings which are typically the course and people that want the dignity of the federal government in their buildings uh, but also the solutions that are out there and so as we move forward it's going to get i think better as the solutions become a little cleaner and more integrated in design. But these are these are two that are top of mind. I have a couple of examples. Our headquarters is in uh, Farmington, Connecticut. Um, the lease actually runs for five more years. Um, there's nothing we could do with the lease. But we, when we looked at it and after COVID, we instituted hybrid um, in most of our HQ, regional HQ locations. So what we did here um, was actually consolidate from three floors down to one. We went dark. We're still paying rent. But there was a significant amount of just utility savings. Um, we've done this now in several other cities where we are not aligned uh, with the lease. We're still trying to compress and save. Um, this also helps when you're reporting utilities directly. Not all of our facilities report utilities directly, but... Outside of that yellow couch you see in the picture, everything else is redeployed. If all of the other furniture is redeployed from some of our other locations that we've closed. But the more interesting thing that, that's come out of this is people are compressed. We've de deployed a free address seating. Not even our CEO has an assigned uh, seat or a desk. The CFO, there's accidental encounters that happen. There's greater access to natural light. Um, but that infographic on the right-hand side, it looks a little bit tiny. The stuff that came out when we consolidated and cleaned, it was insane. How much paper had accumulated and how much artwork we donated and how many drawers full of stuff. 
we emptied and actually we gave to the, either the local police department or to the schools. In Florida, we gave a lot of our um, well-used, um, not uh, well-functioning computers and monitors to local schools. But putting that in an infographic that made people feel like they were part of something bigger than just, you're taking my desk away, right? So the story and the narrative for this was very important for us and it, it became a self-fulfilling kind of a prophecy and it helped us move forward uh, much faster. We've done this now in a couple of other countries, our regional headquarters, um, if you will. Um, you can see in Europe, North America, and in Asia Pacific. Um, so the hybrid work, I mean, when we speak about project examples, one is reducing your consumption of space, moving to a better quality asset where we can. We don't own any of our um, office locations. We own our factories. But this is, this is now, um, you know, catching on globally, if you will. And each site is different, right? I can't take a solution in America and apply it to Hong Kong. And that doesn't work in Tokyo. So the, this requires a tremendous and an enormous effort. Um, and what's interesting is that this is also a re-engagement strategy when you get the local leaders um, involved. A couple of other things. Um, our factory, we have our San Sebastian factory. That's a difficult one uh, in terms of historic buildings that the factory there was really falling apart. We sold that parcel of land. We're working um, with the local zoning agencies to see if we can rezone it. Uh, to be converted to a residential, and we moved to a new location. So this is the photo there. You can see it's tiny, but that's for the King of Spain. We just recently opened. It's one of our most energy-efficient buildings. Uh, we're uh, aiming for gold certification for LEED for a factory. That's a first um, from my perspective in terms of exposure. So um, we're also doing uh, stuff on... We, we, there, there's acronyms here. VPPA, so green energy, um, purchase price agreements, virtual purchase price agreements, and you know gr uh, green tariffs. That's definitely one of the very big and important things. Solar is a big initiative. Uh, we need to now uh, make sure that it's uh, prioritized correctly because what we're finding is you sometimes do solar and don't look at the sprinklers, um, you know, in 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 the right uh, way, if you will. Uh, product stuff, EPD, stand for Environmental uh, Product Declarations. Um, those basically tell you, the, uh, Chuck was talking about the embodied carbon. So we have 11 EPDs, and when you pick an elevator, if you're a developer or you're going into new construction, you'll be able to see the actual impact that the product makes. So this is an interesting thing because I, you know, I've never worked for a company that's actually in the building um, industry, if you will. And then waste reduction, uh, we got a true certification for our factory in South Carolina uh, for zero waste to landfill. Uh, our, another factory in Hangzhou um, doesn't comply to the same standards, but if you don't know what the true certification is, it's really worth going and looking at. It's essentially making sure that your waste is not going into the land and you're taking care of the life, um, cradle to grave life cycle. That's very difficult to do for a company that makes elevators and escalators. It's very difficult to do. But we did achieve that in the US, and we're, we're expanding um, that, if you will. Um, this is the last example I have. 55% um, of our scope one and scope two emissions come from fleet, 55%. Only 15% comes from offices. The, uh, uh, comes 15% uh, comes from factories and the other 35 comes from our offices. 
So what we're trying to do is work with the digital um, team. We were, when, when we started this project last year for route optimization, our service uh, technicians were crossing the map on the left was what, what, was, what was happening before. Um, and then we, when we deployed um, an algorithm and a tool, they were able to optimize. So imagine the emission reduction that that does for the environment. We're taking that to also now figure out what is our branch. We have 55 locations in the city of Paris, which is crazy. So how do you take the fleet optimization and the route optimization and put it on your branch to start to have digital technology make things efficient? This is also from a product perspective. When you have connected elevators and connected buildings, that has a direct impact on managing energy um, more efficiently. So I'll stop there and see. Um, are there any other examples, Emily, that you wanted to share? Sure. I'm actually going to lead with a cautionary tale. So as we're looking outward at what the industry can do, and we're, we're putting together our wish list, we're going out to a gazette and we're saying, I want to do a brand new building. I've got this vision, low emissions, hitting all of our targets. You get the plan together. You get the different teams running off in different, you know, design, construction, getting it all ready to go. If you haven't thought through the end state of how once the ribbon gets cut and the doors get open, you're going to have challenges in actually delivering on what you're trying to do. So for me, I think being able to walk the talk should always be part of your presentation upward in terms of the projects that you're looking to deliver for ESG. So here's where the cautionary tale comes in. We as a company moved our global headquarters out of the UK into Singapore in 2019. And part of that big move was planning a new flagship campus. So we found a beautiful historic building. It was the first power station in Singapore. This is briefly a nightclub before we picked it up. And we had all these incredible targets. We wanted to be a smart building, use smart materials. Just a wonderful campaign story. And on ribbon cutting day, it was just fabulous. We open the doors, we get the people in, they're using the space. We're trying to be tracking, you know, what are the trends? How are people using the space? So that we can better forward forecast and make the space continue to grow and iterate throughout the journey of the lease. Day one, lights go on, dial up the computer to check our occupancy sensors. They're trapped behind a firewall. We have no data and we can't get to it whatsoever. So the dream was there, the vision was there, but we didn't have that big picture to start from, that change management perspective. And we hadn't aligned our targets. We didn't have operations on board before we're planning from the get-go. And so we weren't actually able to walk or talk. And I think it's that sort of perspective that actually makes, again, trying to, all of this is about improvement, right? Do you want to improve your environmental footprint? Do you want to improve the social aspects for your employees or who your corporation is out in the world? Or are you just looking to fulfill governance reporting? I thought it was so interesting in the poll how low the governance piece factored in for all of you. And I think that's pretty indicative of the fact that we're sitting in the US today and not, say, a European country where you know, climate accords are going through, legislature is ticking out day by day by day. But that's going to start rolling over to us, and it's really going to be impacted in our supply chain. So we need to be thinking about the big picture at every step. I'm going to stay with you, Emily, and ask the, the next question. So for projects, right, typically we focus on cost. Um, it's going, and we spoke about net zero ready and what have you. How do we change our approach from focusing on cost to what the value proposition yeah. might be? And is there a role of, you know, what is the role that consultants and vendors can play? Is there a change management component? Um, I think we need to rethink the approach a little bit because it's been focused on reduce the cost, get this done for the least amount of money. 
And I think, so back to my last point around joining up all the dots. So anytime we've got a project going up for review, it's all about that initial spend. What do we need to do to get through permit? Who's gonna be at the design table? Get it done. If you're thinking about the life of your lease, the overall cost, the overall labor, that's where things start to break down. And so if you're really truly forecasting for the life of your assets and you're looking at also risk management, right? So there's upfront cost and then there's the cost to operate year after year after year. We know the climate is changing. We know that there's changes happening to our infrastructure, to our supply chains that none of us were even thinking about four or five years ago. And those are elements that we can start to pick and choose to pop into these business cases to get educated every moment. We can't trust that our stakeholders know everything about everything. We have to be the handholders and we have to paint the picture for them. I think it's incredibly successful when you can go in and say, hey, you're probably gonna gravitate towards this piece, the upfront cost. Let me show you how over the life of we can drop our risk profile, and actually save money. That's how you get people on the journey. Chuck, anything from you from a risk perspective as climate change happens um, or even governance compl compliance um, type of view, are you seeing any changes with the way you're approving or pushing forward projects or even reviewing your portfolio strategy for that matter? Yeah, again, with the government, whatever comes our way usually comes with metrics that we have mm -hmm. to hit and we're reporting out to everybody so it's it's live online you can go see what see what we're doing and how we're doing so it, it kind of ups it to a new level of what we're doing and so how we craft those metrics to make sure we get the right solution uh, there was a little bit of learnings from the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act back in 2008 I think it was we were going out and checking our buildings only to find out that the folks we had in our buildings didn't know how to operate the systems that were already in our buildings because we were trying to run tests on them. We couldn't get the information out of that. And we were putting in higher tech equipment and smarter buildings with the same people running those buildings. And so we, we had to kind of retool uh, the folks on the facility side, and we had to have FM at the table when we're doing those design and having those conversations. And so the biggest risk is, yeah, are we putting in place systems that we can actually operate and do? Because if not, they become highly inefficient. Then you end up replacing them. There goes the embodied carbon. There goes everything else. It's just a downward spiral. So that's probably the biggest risk is make sure that we're thinking through these solutions and things. Um, and then the other piece is it's kind of just managing the conversation. And, and I I was looking at this panel as a refreshing one, not talking about RTO, but everything goes back to return to office. Um, everybody is saying, I don't want to come back to the way it was. Well, that lends itself to, well, let's throw out all this furniture we have now and buy new stuff and do something different kind of thing. And, and we can't do that. We have to start looking at the furniture we have now. How do you reposition it? How do you repurpose it for the way we're doing it? How do you make things a little more agile, a little more flexible? Furniture manufacturers have caught on. Now they're coming up with pieces, not sets of things that you can't integrate with other furniture manufacturers. So they're, they're, they're there. We just have to start thinking in a different way as, as we think to landfill and decisions because every decision we make has impacts somewhere in the ESG world. I'm going to add to that. Um, last year, we did an exercise uh, related to the TCFD. TCFD stands for Task Force for Climate-Based Financial Disclosures. Um, if you don't know what that is, it's essentially you get a group of executives together and you talk about a one degree, two degrees Celsius, two and a half degrees Celsius, and you do up uh, when you think that event is going to happen and what the impact is going to be for, to your business. So that was a fascinating, I was, I was part, an active participant, um, you know, from, from a real estate perspective for Otis, but as sea levels rise, what's going to happen 
to the buildings, to hospitals, to residential stuff, to sky rises? And then what, what does that mean from a risk perspective to our operations? And this may sound terrible, but it's true. Is there an opportunity for us to, to start to invest by looking at this proactively? So my point being, if you haven't done that exercise, that may be something worth considering and asking for you to be at the, uh, have a seat at the table. But the other thing I will say is you cannot do it all by yourself. We had really wonderful consultants. EY actually helped us through that exercise. It doesn't have to be EY. Um, no offense to EY, but people who know how to do this, you need someone to help moderate because you're going to have people that are all over the place. You know, for our, and from that exercise, it was interesting that we found out, okay, we have you know, nine factories in EMEA, but we have only two in the Americas. And when an event, a climate-related event happens, we don't have a good disaster recovery plan. So that got prioritized, and it's not going to be fixed overnight because it, these are production facilities. But what impact does that have to our outsourced vendors and to supply chain, logistics, warehousing, distribution? The list is very long. So just use, I mean, you don't have to solve it by yourself, but back to what Emily was saying, Start somewhere and see if you can get the right help and expertise from people that know how to do this a little bit better. Okay, I'm going to turn to electrification. This morning, we had a story in the news about Chipotle going all electric and what have you. Um, EVs are here to stay. Um, Chuck and Emily, do you have any comments or you know, things that you would like to mention for electrification of buildings and the role in decarbonization? All of us are going to be... Talk about it. I mean, I think it's looking outward and looking inward, right? So where are you getting your energy from and also how much you're using? I think you gave a great example earlier of you don't have the data to know how much you're using and then your facilities team can't say, let's just shut that wing down. Or let's go less on this one. We don't, again, have to run after all the shiny news articles to make change. We can look internally and see where we just need a little bit better reporting, a little better training for staff. I like the news articles because, again, it's an opportunity to educate that C-suite who ultimately have to sign the check for the changes that we'd like to make. But we have to be really cautious with all the splash. Are those things we can actually run with? Are those changes that we can actually adopt today? And if they are interested, then we can start to roadmap for them of how we can get there. And from our perspective, I mean, on the electrification side, uh, we've got a couple uh, district heating and cooling plants that when you look at converting, a, that, it's a heavy lift. It's not going to happen all at once. It's a hard one to fund, all those kind of things. But you have to start somewhere. So how do you start doing that in a phased approach? What do you do? And we've been talking with Canada, the UK. They're, they're struggling in doing the same things. Netherlands was in that conversation. But it's doable, but it's not going to be something you just put in your CapEx and do it overnight, and the next and it's done. So those, that's one of the, the bigger items. On our buildings, like, like most of our requirements that I showed, we're moving toward electrification of our buildings. But then you get to the EV conversation, and it was, we buy cars for governments and pens and paper and all that kind of stuff, and we build buildings for government. Well, now we're in an EV conversation. Well, where are you going to buy the cars? That's where we'll put the EV stations. Where are you going to put the EV stations? That's where we'll buy the cars. And, and it just got into this crazy conversation. And the concern was you didn't want to overpopulate one of our buildings parking areas with EV stations with no EV vehicles in the area or no support structure in that community to have EVs. So it, it, it really is a, a difficult one, and you have to be intentional and think through that and be able to say to somebody, no, I know it sounds good for a photo op and doing that, but that's the absolutely wrong place you want to do. And that, and that again, harkens back to some of the projects we did 
in, like I said, the Recovery Act back in 2008, we were putting PVs around the country with the intention behind that, which was the right intention, is to drive the PV industry, to get American-made photovoltaics uh, up in place. So the industry, the prices would come down, more people would use them, all that kind of stuff. It had that success. But we were putting photovoltaics in buildings in the middle of coal country and producing excess energy that nobody wanted to buy because they were giving away energy because it was the middle of coal country down in southern Illinois here. Um, so it, it, it really is. And, and that was partially driven by, at the time, deep recession. Let's get a project in every state and every location. So, so it was serving the right – it met what its needs were. The one the funding we have now with the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infiltration law uh, isn't that. It's not doing it in every state. It's doing it in locations that make sense. And so we're being becoming more intentional about what we do. And so when you look at photovoltaics, it's the same thing. We're going to need to get there, but how do you phase that in an appropriate way? And that's a conversation you have to have with people. Before we jump into metrics um, and accounting and reporting, I, w- I wanted to touch on the S, the social of ESG. Um, Emily and Chuck, I'll start with you, and maybe I can come in after. But how a company manages the relationship with its workforce and the social impact that it makes uh, seems to be becoming more of a topic of conversation with executives. How do you see your team playing a role in that conversation? I can start. I think we're kind of the unlockers, right? So if we look at the other two pillars of ESG, environment and governance, we hold all the data and all of that planning. And to your point around when you guys were compressing and you made that one visual saying, you know, this is how much we kept out of a landfill. It's on us to actually serve up that data in a way that people can digest and do the storyboarding to take them along the journey. So whether it's organizing a volunteer day for our people across our locations, whether it's just reminding people, hey, here's your onboarding packet for your first day within the office. It's got the links to our EAP plan for every employee globally. I I can't see anybody else who has that stewardship, that really end-to-end opportunity to meet people in a physical space and take them along all of our company's goals and really activate them in terms of, here's what you can do sitting at your desk today. Unplug that piece. That's a great example. Chuck? Yeah, for us, a couple different things we've been doing. One is uh, we've always had a good neighbor program, which is us working with communities and, and figuring out how our projects help provide catalysts to what those communities are doing. Uh, we also do have something that's called planning, opportunity, and partnership meetings where we go into communities where we don't have a project going on. We just bring all the stakeholders and grant uh, issuers together to say what are some of the opportunities within the city kind of thing. And, and so both of those conversations start to spur uh, the ability for us to serve as a catalyst. We're not going to do it all, but let's get the conversation going and moving forward. So that, that's helped. Um, the other thing we as government can do, and we sponsored a report uh, with the Dodge Smart Market Reports, to actually look at the state of DEIA and the industry, um, of talking to architects, contractors, and providers uh, to shine some light on. We knew we weren't going to get some stellar results, but there wasn't any kind of information or statistics around it and what was driving it. Why would you do this? Why don't you do that? Do you have a program? Do you not have a program? Real simple questions, and we got some really great information that, that came out this January that we're sharing with everybody. But it's part of it's just bringing light to some of these issues that are out there um, and getting the right people at the table to say, what's the opportunity? Because we're building buildings. I've been telling my folks, we, we come in and we dump $450 million into a courthouse in the city. We've got to be thinking beyond the block. 
And and too often in the past, it's been let's build this building, let's get out, get it done, get it on time, on budget, and get out of town kind of thing. And the whole conversation shifted to a much broader uh, audience. You touched on the two things I wanted to mention as well. Um, I would say get involved, right? Um, whether you have an ERG, which is an employee resource group, or a BRG, those are great avenues where meaningful connections happen, especially as hybrid com continues to be here to stay. How do you maintain that connectedness? I, I'm also the executive sponsor for Thrive, which is our internal ERG that focuses on mental health and people with disabilities. I didn't ask for that role, but I was curious and I ended up um, in, that, in that role. But what that's done is really opened my eyes on Special Olympics and what we do um, in the community. But get involved, whether it's an ERG, BRG, or in your community, and encourage your teams to do something meaningful that's meaningful to them, whether it's volunteer hours um, or explaining the impact beyond the building and beyond your work, get involved. The second thing I will say is start to pay attention, right? So for us, um, I had shared this, I think, at the Chicago uh, Larger Summit when we were talking about this topic. But with the talent acquisition group and when we're posting for job descriptions, everything is like um, the role requires uh, um, the, the person to be presentable, excellent communication skills, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, but this is not a role that actually requires that. And so we had to take a step back because that, and, and retrain the, the talent acquisition team to say, can we start to hire from a neurodiverse background? And do, does everybody have to be an excellent communicator? If, you, if someone needs to be great at accounting skills or on, on data science or analytics, can we rethink how we're hiring? Can we rethink on, on how the managers are providing feedback because someone may not be you know, um, on the normal spectrum and maybe on the neurodiverse spectrum, or folks that are in, you know, physically disabled, if you will. And that, that, so pay attention and also with your vendors, Chuck mentioned this, right? You may not be hiring for, when you're going and looking for project work. They may not be a certified minority or a diverse vendor or Adobe, a disability-owned business enterprise. But can you challenge them to bring the right team to the table, even they may not be certified? So those are things I would just challenge all of us Right, to think about in your day-to-day -day job, can you approach the same problem a little bit differently? Can I just add one thing? Yes. I'm looking around the room, and this, is, this happens almost at every meeting I go to and stuff. There's not a lot of young folks here, people that are new to the industry, people that have been here for a year. So when you talk about changing where we got to go and what we want to do, we really need to bring that plus one and, and have somebody that can come. Because I can solve Chuck's problems. I know what they are but they're in a whole different perspective when you bring the people they're going to have to, our legacy folks, and what are they doing, and they need to hear these conversations. So I have a time check here. We didn't get into re reporting and accounting, but... Yeah, we only have five minutes, so okay. if we could just do a we, couple... Yeah, we can just open it up for questions. Very quickly on accounting and reporting, any thoughts, Chuck, from you? No, I said just accounting and reporting. We're covered by OMB and, and many other agencies, the GAO that, that come in, the Government Accounting Office and all that kind of stuff. Uh, pretty strict, and so we're. It, it, it's good and bad. It's, it's bad with someone always second guessing what you're doing, but it's good because it forces you to think through your metrics and the reporting around it. I'll just add one thing. Um, only 40 of our 1,400 plus buildings uh, actually report utilities directly. So what we do for the rest of them is we applied uh, factors, um, the standard factors for emissions, um, if you will, and we've embedded all of those in all of our approvals. 
So that's just another creative way. I'm happy to uh, stick around and talk more about it. But that helps us in um, our audit and our reporting and our CO2 uh, metrics, if you will. So we'll stop here and see if there's questions from the audience. Sorry, we ran long. Hello, this question is for Chuck. Um, I cannot remember the term that you used. Was it captured carbon or? Embodied, embodied carbon? Yes. Um, and you mentioned in Europe and place, other places besides the US, they are starting to require that. Do you see within the government or even here in the United States that coming here and kind of being the first approach of reusing a building before we can tear it down and maybe not even allowing that in the future? Yeah, I, I just read an article from National Development Association. They were talking the same thing is somehow there has to be an ROI to it because it doesn't, it, the, the math doesn't add up right now. And if you can get uh, credits for embodied carbon that actually factor into your prices, you can close that gap and it makes uh, the development a lot better because, and, and this isn't, whether it's office or whatever, if I'm kind of uh, turning or using an existing building, I can do it cheaper because the building's there, but I'm not going to be able to compete with the level of finishes and what's going on in a from the ground up building kind of thing. So, so somehow you got to reconcile that. So that's, that's really where the attention is going to go is how do we quantify and, and monetize embodied carbon, which we're not there yet, but I think, and that's, I think that's across the world. We just got to get there and figure out what that is. Other questions? Hi, my question, this is a general question to the panel. Um, when you look at the terminology, sustainability, ESG, global warming and climate change, those terms can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So when you're thinking about your internal stakeholders as you're talking about these topics, and then also external stakeholders, whether it be at the national, state or local level, how, how does the political climate come into this in terms of trying to make positive change? If you could just comment in general. Thank you. I don't comment on political things, but um, <laughs> the th and this is what's nice about government is we get our C-suite changes every four or eight years, whether we like it or not. Uh, but because of that, there is a focus on making sure something gets foundationally set and carries forward. And, and, be, and, and also in parallel to that, while we get a lot of leadership sprinkled throughout the government and political appointees, the careerists are the ones that are having to stay there, live through and figure out what it is. So there's a constant kind of uh, looking through those lens, are we doing the right thing? And, and pushing through and, and vetting those directions. And so as we do climate and sustainability and all the executive orders that come out, it's always looked through the lens, does this make sense and how do we put this into a business mindset? And, and, and so we're, we've, we believe we're doing the right things as we go forward. Uh, our challenge tends to be more along the lines of getting funding to do it right up front because everybody's trying to do everything in four or eight years and the funding doesn't flow to be able to do that. So how do you phase something into a, an unringable bell that gets you to where you want to go moving forward? I think to add on to that, establishing mutual goals early is so important. I think it was a Stacey Abrams quote about when she was campaigning down in Georgia, some of her constituents 
were really upset that a wetlands was slated to go away and the developers would not beat them in the middle in terms of saving some of the wetlands. And when they framed it in terms of, but your, your property valuation is gonna be so much higher if you've got a diverse biome for people to walk through and you know, have, again, that like social piece of your property, suddenly they got it. And so I think camping out on either sides of the aisle and refusing to look at what everyone else's perspective is, it's not gonna get you anywhere. So if you can really take on the mindset of you know, your challenge opponents in the room for where you need to get to and really ask them, what's your goal here? What, where are you trying to get to? How can I help you? That's where we can all make change. Yeah, I can, I, I'll go back to what Emily had said earlier. In the, the overall maturity in Europe, um, irrespective of the political climate, on just understanding these issues and communicating in the right language is so far ahead. So we, us, inter we internally are actually putting our listening ears on, making them really big because we need to listen more to what they're saying. They, they call us fat. They, when, we, when we show benchmarking data, it's amazing. Even the, the grid is greener. So paying attention to what they're doing and how they're approaching problems, I think we need to learn. Um, APAC is, is getting there, but I think they're sprinting forward um, much more quickly. But I think we could, being here in, in the US, we need to pay attention to what um, others are doing and learn from them. And it's contextualizing it because I was meeting with a, someone from the UK on workplace issues. And, and she's like, you'll never, you'll never be Europe. And I'm like, well, why is that? She goes, and we were walking across the street. She goes, everything's bigger here. This street is twice as wide as it needs to be. The temperatures that we have in our offices are a lot higher than you people would even tolerate kind of thing. And so while we can, I think, get closer, it's going to be a much heavier lift than just saying, let's do what they're doing here or doing there kind of thing. It, it really, you've got to, you got to personalize it for folks. And, and that's where I think politics comes out of it. It needs to make sense for people to do, and then they'll jump on the bandwagon. So we're good, Teresa? Yes. Thank you so much, for everyone, for coming. And Thank we'll you see so you much, next guys. week. Thank you. All right. We'll hang around here if you have questions for a few minutes. Thank you.